Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. A landmark Supreme Court decision put the EPA in charge of regulating greenhouse gases coming out of cars. But state officials complain when it comes to implementing the ruling, the agency's administrator isn't exactly putting the pedal to the metal. It looks like he is in total stall mode under orders of the president. If that's true, we will assume. And climate change refugees from the tiny Pacific island nation of Tuvalu resettle in New Zealand. People will still look at my car and go, hey, where are you from? Which island? And I'll say, I'm from Tuvalu. And then they'll say, and where is that? What shall I say? Oh, it has disappeared or submerged on the sea because of global warming. We revisit the plight of the Tuvaluans. Also, as demand soars, the supply of wind turbines takes a turn for the worse. Take a spin with us this week on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. It's been more than three months since the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the federal government has the power to regulate global warming gases coming out of cars and trucks. So why isn't Washington doing what the court said? Critics charged the Bush administration is stuck in the slow lane. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports. Last November, Massachusetts Attorney General Tom Riley stood on the steps of the Supreme Court to explain why his state had sued the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Riley said global warming gases from autos were harming his state. In a situation like that where a pollutant is causing harm in public health and public welfare, the EPA is obligated to deal with that. And that's all we're asking. That is all we're asking. Do your jobs. Do your jobs. In April, the court issued what many called a historic 5-4 decision that the EPA had authority to regulate carbon dioxide coming from tailpipes. The justices essentially agreed with Riley. It was time for the administration to do its job. But what would that job be exactly? In a speech last month, President Bush had an answer. And when the court says something, then the executive branch of government says, okay, you said it, now we'll we'll listen, we'll do what you asked us to do. And so I directed the EPA and the Department of Transportation, Energy, and Agriculture to take the first steps toward regulations that would cut gasoline consumption and greenhouse gases. We're moving forward because the Supreme Court told us to move forward. It still wasn't clear what action the president had in mind or when it would happen. It fell to EPA Administrator Stephen Johnson to fill in details. My goal is to have a proposal on uh, on the street by the end of the year uh, with the president's commitment and goal to have that regulation then finalized by end of 2008. That's a very aggressive, a very aggressive schedule, particularly for regulation that's very complex. That doesn't sound very aggressive to officials from states eager to act on global warming pollution. California Senator Barbara Boxer notes that the schedule Johnson describes means there would be no action until just weeks before Bush leaves office. I find it rather amusing that nothing's really going to happen in his term if we follow that timeline. 
we're a little worried about that approach because California and many other states are just waiting to act. California approved a measure to cut tailpipe emissions from new cars and trucks by 30 percent within a decade, and about a dozen states want to do the same. The Clean Air Act gives California special permission to make its own rules, stricter than federal law, and then other states with air pollution problems can adopt the California standard. But before any state can put those regulations into place, California must get permission, called a waiver, from the EPA. And the state has been waiting nearly two years. Boxer thinks the president is simply delaying any decision on the waiver. We hope not, and I've had many conversations with the administrator of EPA. He's telling me he'll have an answer by the end of the year. Uh, we all think the answer ought to come in weeks, not months. Now Boxer and fellow Democrats from California and Florida are pushing a bill that would force EPA Administrator Johnson to decide on the California waiver by October at the latest. Other members of Congress wonder why EPA isn't also looking at controlling carbon dioxide from sources other than vehicles. Massachusetts Democrat Ed Markey called Johnson before the new House Special Committee on Global Warming, setting up this tense exchange. Just to put a fine point on this, if it's a danger, if CO2 is a danger coming from tailpipes, would it not also be a danger coming from utilities? From a legal standpoint and under the, uh, under the terms under the Clean Air Act, that's one of the important questions that we're reviewing right now. A rose is a rose. CO2 is CO2, Mr. Johnson. It's a not satisfactory answer. And Johnson faces still other pressure. California Attorney General Jerry Brown told the Global Warming Committee that he'll take the EPA back to court if California is not allowed to proceed. It looks like he is in total stall mode under orders of the president. If that's true, we will assume we're committed to every legal, political, activist initiative to get this job done. But, of course, they can stall, and ultimately, it's up to you. We need Congress uh, to settle this problem. And that may be where the Supreme Court's global warming decision ends up having its greatest effect, by prodding lawmakers to act. Sierra Club attorney David Bookbinder, who helped craft the climate change suit against EPA, says the decision is already having an effect on Capitol Hill. The Supreme Court decision has clearly galvanized Congress into action. Congress is very well aware that unless they act, the administrative agencies, EPA and state agencies, will begin regulating CO2. So does Congress want to become irrelevant or does it want to step up and create the comprehensive climate legislation? So even though the Supreme Court's decision hasn't yet brought any real action on global warming, it has made the issue impossible for lawmakers to ignore. Congressional Democrats say they will take up a climate change bill this fall. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. You don't have to be a weatherman to know which way the wind is blowing. You might want to be an investment banker. 
That's because the wind turbine business is booming. Demand is so high for wind power, there aren't enough wind turbines to go around. Joining me is Matthew Patsky. He's partner and portfolio manager with Boston-based Winslow Management Company, which manages the Winslow Green Growth Fund, focusing on companies that address environmental issues. Matthew, welcome. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, boy, the demand is so big for these things. I was reading the United States went up fourfold since 2000. Yeah, it's, it's been growing very rapidly. In 2006, we were up 26%, and we're growing a little bit faster this year, up 27%. Why is that? The, the economics of wind are very compelling, and particularly in an environment of rising fossil fuel prices, the economics have only become more compelling as uh, you know, technology improvements have lowered the cost in producing electricity using wind. And obviously, the cost of producing it via fossil fuels has been rising. But in Europe, it's been big for decades, and it's only recently here. In Europe, there was a, a much more forward-thinking federal government initiatives by a lot of the countries in Europe to promote renewable energy. And so you saw, for example, Germany get uh, far ahead of us in terms of use of wind. Um, and basically, broadly in, in Europe, there's been a lot more use of wind power for producing electricity and uh, we were slower to pick up on that trend. Well, the demand is so high now, they don't have enough wind turbines to go around. You're seeing a couple factors, uh, both the U.S., which is really turning to wind now in a, in a very major way with lots of demand, and, of course, uh, China and India also coming on in, as part of their energy demands, picking up uh, wind as a, one of the resources they're trying to implement. And so you've got such tremendous demand, um, everybody was caught without enough supply of wind turbines, and all the way through the manufacturing channel, there's bottlenecks and an inc a need to increase capacity. We're not talking about the windmills from 20 years ago, which were really kind of small ones. Right. The ones now are enormous. As they've been building them larger and larger, getting more efficient, um, they've also had all sorts of issues. The old blades were made of fiberglass. You actually, with the new windmill uh, blades, because of the blade size in these wind turbines, you can't even make them out of fiberglass anymore. You need carbon fiber. There's a shortage of carbon fiber. And that's because there's such demand for the carbon fiber for use in applications of wind power. And you would think that it's such a simple-looking device. You know, it just goes around. Right. But it's very complex, a lot of parts. It is a complicated device and an expensive device, but becoming increasingly economic. And therefore, you know, there's not only just regulatory reasons why there's more and more demand for them. It's because industry is realizing that there's an economic reason to use them. For example, Florida Light and Power now producing almost 20% of their power from wind. And there are states that require a certain amount of power. I think 20 to 21 states require a certain amount of power be supplied by alternative energies. Right. Increasingly, states have put in place legislation requiring that there be a move toward a certain portion of their electricity needs coming from renewable. And those renewable standards are indeed helping drive some of this growth, too. So right now we have this bottleneck on the parts to make these turbines. Yep. When does that clear up? I mean, you have Vestas building new facilities, you have, which is a wind turbine maker, you have Zoltec, which we know well, which is a carbon fiber manufacturer, has been adding capacity in its facilities, uh, particularly in Hungary. So you're really trying to catch up with demand by adding capacity. Now, is there truly ever a catch up in the near term? I can't tell, but I know that, no, there's more capacity coming on in 08 with both of those companies. Wind is bigger than solar. Wind is bigger than solar because it's more economic. And, of course, geothermal, which is a, another alternative energy source, is even cheaper. 
you know, you're going to see some very rapid growth of a lot of different categories of renewable energy over the next decade, and wind is certainly seeing the biggest growth because it has so many applications. It can be put in a lot of different places, and obviously with the wind farms you're seeing are producing a lot of electricity with those larger and larger wind turbines. But even with all of this growth in the wind industry, it, it still supplies only a small fraction of the energy that's consumed in the United States, right? Yeah, in the U.S., 50% of our electricity comes from coal. Less than 3% is coming from wind. So what would it take for wind power to cover a much greater portion of our energy use? Well, you're seeing 25% plus growth now. That You're likely going to see acceleration as some of the capacity issues are eased. And you know, with that, you will see continued growth in the market share of the energy that's produced via wind in the U.S. But, you know, you're coming off of such a small base. This could go on for many years. You know, you could see acceleration to 50 percent and still have that continue for three, four, five, six years. And we're just sort of beginning to make a dent in, in fossil fuel use. Well, Matt Patsky, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Bruce. It's my pleasure. Matthew Patsky is partner and portfolio manager with Boston-based Winslow Management Company. Coming up, heading for the hills of New Zealand, Tuvaluans flee the advancing sea. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Today we turn to our archives in our award-winning series, Early Signs, Reports from a Warming Planet. Living on Earth, along with the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism and Salon.com, set out to document places around the world where the effects of climate change can already be seen. One of those places is the tiny Pacific island nation of Tuvalu. Just three feet above sea level, the islands are expected to eventually disappear off the face of the earth, drowning as global warming melts the ice sheets, raising the level of the oceans. Some Tuvaluans see themselves as climate refugees and are already abandoning their islands, moving their communities to higher ground in a new land. Alexandra Berzon reports from New Zealand. It's the biggest party of the year for one of the nine islands that make up Tuvalu, Nanumea. The annual celebration of the day European missionaries brought Christianity to the island. Families gather on mats and feast picnic style on foods like funa funa, donuts filled with jam, and taro drenched in coconut milk, egg foo young, and buckets of KFC chicken. Then, competing groups of elders and youth take turns dancing, singing, and drumming on a big wooden box into the early hours of the morning, while onlookers stand up and announce jokingly which group they liked best. That man just said that he prefers the youth, but the old lady said that she prefers the oldies. Tuvaluans have been performing these songs for generations across their string of low coral atolls. But this event is not taking place in Tuvalu. Instead, we're 2,000 miles away in Auckland, New Zealand. And here, surrounded by tradition, sits a group of young girls looking unimpressed. What's your name? Ali. What's your name? Amy. Nice to meet you, Amy. Nice to meet you, Ali. Amy is seven. 
Her favorite song is My Humps by the Black Eyed Peas. The boys that want to sex me, they always shining next to me, trying to feel my hump, hump, looking at my love, love. You can touch it if we touch it, if we touch it, oh my, and oh my hump. Here in this West Auckland suburb where many Tuvaluans have settled, you won't find an ocean outside the door, coconut trees on the shore, or taro in every garden. You're more likely to encounter malls and wide boulevards. Over the last decade, the islanders have come here for many reasons. Better jobs, college, overcrowding on the islands, and to escape what many see as a threat of sea level rise caused by global warming. That's me prepare the breakfast every morning and yeah, that's for my family. Penasita Daniela arrived in New Zealand with a small suitcase and a carton of fish. He lives now in the western working-class suburb Ranui in a three-bedroom home with his wife, children, father, stepmother, and sisters. Penny's living room, like most Tuvaluan homes, contains no furniture, just hand-woven straw mats that his father and stepmom sleep on. Shell necklaces and family photos line the walls. As Penny fries pancakes on a leisurely Saturday morning, his two young kids ride around the living room on a shiny new bike with a squawk box. Nearly 20 years ago, when Penny was just a teenager living on his family's land, he remembers hearing that someday the sea would rise and drown his island. Just my dad said, oh, don't worry about that. We are just waiting for many years, not, not now. But over time, Penny and his family noticed changes. High tides getting higher, beaches eroding, water coming up through the soil. Here's his father, Talaki Daniela. As I was a kid, we used to play on, on the beach and uh, we've seen the high tide and all that. But in recent years, high tide gone over beyond uh, what it used to be. So I said to myself, yes, the scientists are really telling the truth. I managed to build two houses there. I just got up and go and left it behind to my family there. Gauges in Tuvalu indicate the sea has risen an average of five and a half milliliters per year in recent years. That's consistent with average worldwide sea level rise. But scientists say there are also other local explanations, natural and human caused, for the changes islanders have observed. The greater worry, though, is for the future. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which represents the consensus of 2,000 scientists, predicts that over the next 50 to 100 years, global warming will cause oceans to rise up to three feet, and possibly much higher depending on the melting of the Antarctica and Greenland ice sheets. Tuvalu, along with a handful of other islands, is particularly vulnerable because its islands are low-lying and narrow, no more than three feet high in many spots. Some New Zealand scientists argue that because islands are not static lumps of dirt, they will shift with the tides and naturally build themselves up further to withstand a rising ocean. But even those who believe this, and their view meets skepticism from other scientists, but even they say the islands will probably become uninhabitable. And for many Tuvaluans, this is not a risk they're willing to take. No, I don't want to get up in, in the morning and find myself underwater. After breakfast, Penny squats in front of his 12-inch television and searches through piles of old VHS tapes. He inserts a video his father took years ago of a dance performance in Tuvalu and stares at the screen, his one- and two-year-olds bang on their bike in time with the drummers from the island. I show my kid that movie from Tuvalu and, and say, oh, Tuvalu, Tuvalu, where's Tuvalu? They don't know where's Tuvalu. 
I said, maybe they will go there one time. Maybe one day we go there and see the island. You know. Penny's father lies on the floor next to the baby. He says moving to New Zealand can be a hard adjustment. When I was young, I was told that there are two main things you have to learn if you want to live in Tuvalu. How to climb the coconut tree and how to fish. If you know these two, you will live. But, uh, in New Zealand now, you, you have to have uh, an income. It's a very challenging uh, place. Everything you do, it costs you money. Though in a way, he was driven out, most of the time Mr. Daniela looks forward instead of back. He's pleased to have started a business last year that finds temporary migrant labor for New Zealand companies. His son Penny, like many Tuvaluans, started out in Auckland's strawberry fields and packing plants. Hidden behind a dress shop and ice cream parlor, the corrugated metal plant has become a Tuvaluan community hub, a site of lively singing and chatter. I meet my friends here and all the Tuvaluan lady here. <laughs> Here, women sit behind tiny desks, rapidly sorting through strawberries, putting the good ones in plastic containers, and throwing the bad down a chute into a pile that will become jam. Tatalena Kofi is wearing a red sarong over black sweatpants with a pink flower in her hair. She's been working in the fields in the morning and packing berries in the afternoon. Uh, Most people at home, they are aware of the problem. They know that the sea level is rising. It's just a matter of knowing people here in New Zealand to come to. We love our island, so I'm sad, that's the word, sad, to leave Tuvalu and come here, but we have to do it because, you know, for our own safety and that of our kids. On Sundays, the Congregation Christian Church of Tuvalu gathers to recite verse and sing hymns beneath framed photos of middle-aged white men in this rented Lions Club hall. In 1998, Rev. Sumalia Yosefa came to New Zealand to set up the Auckland branch of the church. He is 48 but has the aura of a much older man, an elder. He spreads himself thin attending meeting after meeting to try to better the community and feels some responsibility for preserving Tuvaluan culture here. Teaching this, the children you know, in Sunday school, in the language, our services in the language. Mm -hmm. But the younger children, you know, they speak fluent English, you know, not like us. Falilo Tamayo is exiting the service after giving a brief sermon as the vacuum cleaner scoops up the candy wrappers the children left behind. He came to New Zealand just a month ago and is quick to point out that his move had nothing to do with sea level rise. I just want to migrate, to migrate. No threatening reason. Like some religious Tuvaluans, Falilo doesn't believe in global warming because he doesn't think God would ever let anything bad happen to Tuvalu. I don't believe that Tuvalu will submerge, you know. We do adhere to our religious, you know, believe that um, God will help, you know, the people in their country, Tuvalu. But Tuvaluans are of many views. Reverend Sumalia says God and science are speaking with one voice, issuing a warning that humans must follow. No, listen, because God said, build the ark. But do we listen? And I think the church has to have that 
understanding more of science and more of what the world is all about. He gives the example of a Tuvaluan who has come to New Zealand without learning the rules of the road and then blames God when he gets hit by a car crossing the street. And then people said, God has taken him. No, he's not a silly God, but it's you who is silly, you know, who doesn't know the rules. And you were hit by the, the car on the road. New FM, the home of Pacific cultures, languages, views, music, and our Pacific people. Salafakoi, join me. Follow how long in the Tuvalu crew every week. Where we bring you news from Tuvalu, we talk about what's going on with our Tuvalu community. Bala Haolangi's weekly radio show has become a venue for these differing views, a place to discuss the hot-button issues and the lighter fare. My very dedicated listeners She is a union organizer by day with a wild tuft of highlighted hair and over-the-top hand gestures. We talked at a Starbucks in a West Auckland mall. What really concerns me because, like, at the end of the day, I may be a Kiwi now, I call myself a Kiwi because I'm living in New Zealand. But hey, people will still look at my car and go, hey, where are you from? Which island? And I'll say, I'm from Tuvalu. And then they'll say, and where is that? What shall I say? Oh, it has disappeared or submerged on the sea because of global warming. So, like, that's our identity and culture and everything will disappear. I mean, we may get together here as a community to celebrate when it's Independence Day or our successes or things, but it's, it's different. Definitely, it's going to be really hard for us to accept the fact that we are no longer on the map. <laughs> and it's no joke. Fala and Sumalia, along with international environmental activists, argue that Tuvaluans and others in a similar predicament should be treated like refugees and given immigration rights and other refugee benefits. This tiny nation was among the first on the globe to sound the alarm, trekking from forum to forum to try to get the world to listen. New Zealand did agree to take 75 Tuvaluans a year as part of its Pacific Access category, an agreement made in 2001. Kaloa Talaki knows all about this. He was prime minister of Tuvalu at the time. See, you can see the sea from here. Mr. Talaki now lives across from the beach on a remote peninsula north of Auckland. He says that the decision to make it easier for his own citizens to move away from his country was difficult but necessary. Eventually, there will be no place for the poor people to live except climbing up the coconut trees and live on the top. And I thought that well, we should take precautionary action before D-Day arrives. <laughs> and now that Tuvaluans are living in New Zealand, they're beginning to have a voice here, too. My name's Chris Carter. I'm the Member of Parliament. I represent perhaps the largest number of Tuvalu people in the Parliament because the majority of the community live here in West Auckland. The government recognises very much that Tuvalu particularly, being an atoll state, is very vulnerable to climate change and to rising sea levels. In fact, our Prime Minister has told the Prime Minister of Tuvalu that if the worst comes to the worst, we will take the entire community. All I can say is that there is an understanding between our two governments that New Zealand will respond to the needs of Tuvalu if the circumstances become critical. And how could we not? That agreement to take the entire population if there's an environmental crisis is unofficial and unenforceable. And to some politicians, including Minister of Parliament Peta Peroni of the New Zealand First Party, it is the wrong policy for New Zealand. That responsibility shouldn't just fall on, on New Zealand. Tuvaluans need to be aware that there are other nations in, in the Pacific Basin ju uh, just as well accommodate them, probably even better than, than we can. 
And now, the current Tuvalu government says this disagreement doesn't matter because finding a place for refugees doesn't address the underlying problem. I think these things are quick-fix approaches. That's Anale Sobuaga, Tuvalu's ambassador to the United Nations. And we're just running away from the problem. Tuvaluans want to live in their own uh, islands forever. This is a global problem, and um, all of the low-lying coastal areas are going to be affected. Now, you tell me whether the world is ready to evacuate everybody and relocate them. There is a chance to reverse and address climate change, and I think the world should focus on that. The day after the feast celebrating the coming of the missionaries, Nanumeans gather bleary-eyed at a beach party up the coast. Teenagers and 20-somethings in last night's sarongs play traditional games, including more nuanced forms of duck-duck-goose and volleyball. The older people lie out on mats and eat last night's food. One family sings a Tuvaluan song about the island's only ship, a gift from the Japanese government. Seven-year-old Amy runs from the waves. I just asked my auntie and she said, and she said yes, and so I just went. This party might be a close approximation of daily life in Tuvalu, but here in Auckland, it's just a holiday. Silo Tamuana is washing the sand out of her thick hair. She believes reports that say the sea could overtake the islands, but she just can't fathom a world without Tuvalu in it. It's unthinkable. It's... I never thought of that. <laughs> Come, yeah, I never thought of that. Because in my mind, it's going to be there forever. You know? <laughs> For Living on Earth, this is Alexandra Burzon. Early Signs is a collaboration of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, Salon.com, and Living on Earth. To learn more about the climate refugees of Tuvalu and see photos of their life in New Zealand, visit our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. Just ahead, robots, past, present, and future. First, this note on emerging science from Emily Taylor. The grass is always greener, right? Well, thanks to recent research at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute in Maryland, you may soon be able to have green grass and get rid of that noisy, polluting lawnmower to boot. Researchers led by Joanne Chory were able to map the signaling pathway of a crucial hormone in plants that regulates growth and development, thus creating grass that stays green and never needs mowing. Now they believe they can manipulate the pathway and control a plant's stature and its yield. The group of hormones the team examined are called brassinosteroids, and they act as chemical messengers of plant development. 
Without them, all plants would be infertile, tiny dwarves. By limiting the effects of brassinosteroids, Chori and her team believe they may be able to create a genetically modified strain of dwarf grass that stays green all the time. And by enhancing the amount of the steroid, they may be able to create types of plants that would yield greater amounts of seeds. Other studies have shown that brassinosteroids can regulate their own expansion in nature, allowing plants to adapt to their growing conditions in a particular environment. The mainstream effects of this new research could drastically change the face of horticulture in the future, producing sturdier, more fruitful crops. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Emily Taylor. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI. Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. With the prices of gas and oil sky high, many families are trying to conserve energy so that they can avoid costly bills. But it's not a concern for your average teenager. For example, take Youth Radio's Anthony Hauergy. He readily admits he didn't think much about conserving energy. After all, he grew up in sunny Southern California, but on a recent trip to his parents' hometown in Mexico, he began to question why he never questions his energy use. This is the sound of convenience in my house. Microwave, television, computer, stereo. We use these appliances a lot. My 14-year-old brother Alexis is the main culprit. He leaves the lights on and appliances unattended. I, on the other hand, try not to waste that much energy. I caught him upstairs playing on the computer and a handheld video game called a DS at the same time. I'm not on the computer and the DS at the same time, only computer and TV. And then you play on the DS and then you're on the TV at the same time, or the computer and the TV at the same time, or the computer and the DS at the same time, or the computer and the TV and the DS at the same time. No, that's crazy. <laughs> you do that. You're the one who does it. I use it more than you? Of course. You sleep with the radio on and you don't turn it off until the morning. That's not true. You told me five times. <laughs> okay, maybe we both use more energy than necessary. But my parents have tried to teach us to be mindful about energy. They grew up in a totally different era in a small town in Mexico. I used to pick up the manure of the cow and also the manure of the donkeys. Here's my dad talking about his first lesson in energy. Uh, I was like a seven-year-old, and I used to sell it in a, in a place where they used the, the manure to burn it. So that was the, the energy that... Uh, Besides the wood, you know, but sometimes it's hard to get wood in a certain time of the year. That's the gas delivery man in my dad's hometown, Halostotiklan. He's saying, gas. He's shouting out the window of his truck to sell tanks of gas to the townspeople. This summer, I visited my family there and I learned a lot about energy in a new way. The scenery in this town is quite different from my neighborhood in Los Angeles. I see sandy streets, red brick houses, and large open ranches. I also noticed something bizarre. On the rooftops of many houses, there are large metallic panels. I stopped by my neighbors to ask, what's it all about? The person who answers the door 
is an elderly lady named Guillermina González. Es muy buen sistema porque uh, ahorra uno el diner, dinero. She tells me the panels are her solar-powered water heating system. She says that over the past 25 years, she has conserved not only gas, but also tons of money. It seems that energy uses on people's minds here more than L.A. This makes me wonder, am I an energy brat? When I'm home in L.A., I even complain about going outside to put my clothes in the washing machine. Here at my grandma's in Jalisco, I'm getting used to being in the washing machine. Now I am doing laundry. Here it's all hand washed. You get the water from this uh, water reserve, like the inside of the toilet. It's like a little pump and when the water runs out, it refills. And I just scrub. <sighs> when you go through trouble getting something, then you really appreciate, you know, then when you have it. I've always had energy in my fingertips, so I haven't really thought about where it comes from or how much I use. My parents have had it harder, and maybe that's where they get their mentality about energy. Uh, like, I don't know if you remember where your mother used to live. On the top of the hill, she used to go down there to get the water. She was had to walk a lot to get some water. So now, when uh, we, when you guys or, or me even uh, use a lot of water, uh, she really get upset because she, she knew how hard it was to get the water. And now that we have the water, sometimes we waste it. I always thought my mom was just tripping on me whenever I left the water running. But now I understand the chill that must run through her spine when she sees me waste water. Now that I'm back in LA, I'm more dedicated to saving energy. Not only do I turn off the lights, but I even caught myself looking through articles on energy conservation and careers. I used to think energy was only an issue in my house. But now I realize that it's an issue affecting the whole world. For Living on Earth, I'm Anthony Haregui. Our story was produced by Youth Radio. Increasingly, living on Earth means living with robots, sharing the planet with ever more intelligent machines that perform tasks from the mundane, like the robo-lawnmower that cuts your grass, to the highly specialized, like robo-docs that do surgery. The word robot comes from the Slavic word robota, or work, and was first used by Czech science fiction writer Karal Čepek in 1921. Ever since, robots have stirred and captured our imaginations. Star sapphires take a week to crystallize properly. Would diamond or emeralds do? We are all, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. R2-D2, you know better than to trust a strange computer. <laughs> Robo-sapiens, lifelike robots that obey our every command, are still the stuff of Hollywood, but at a recent consumer electronics show in Las Vegas... Robots for the home were being hailed as the next big thing. It's an industry poised to amaze. To see firsthand where things are headed, check out MIT's Humanoid Robotics Group. 
Here on the Cambridge, Massachusetts campus, grad student Aaron Edsinger has just put the finishing touches on one of the world's most advanced robots. This is my PhD work. This is a, a humanoid robot named Domo. Domo means? Domo means um, thanks in Japanese, but it's also the name of a, a song, Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto. Domo looks a lot like a human. It's got eyeballs, and mm. it's looking at me. Yep, yep. <laughs> and it's got this arm with biceps and triceps. It, I mean, put a skin over it. And yeah, it, it's close. It has the human form. And, you know, we very deliberately made it look somewhat human-like because you can very quickly read its body posture, its eye gaze, and these are cues that help for uh, interaction with it. Is it perceiving me? It can. At the moment, the visual cortex is sort of switched off. But whenever everything is running, uh, it can see you, it can interact with you, reach to you, respond to your physical contact. What you see here is that I can grab the arm and it can sense that and it can respond to it when I push on it. So it, it's actually sensing a person's interaction with it. And the idea is that it's sort of a partner robot. It works with you to do something uh, that you, you know, a manual task. No, it's missing a very important part. It, it's got no legs. No legs, yep. Yeah. Legs, legs are hard. We don't focus on, on the mobility so much, although I think that's the next obvious step. That would be major domo. Major domo, yes. <laughs> so what's the computing power of this? This is actually about 15 computers that go into running the robot when everything is turned on. Now, most of that is for computer vision. The motor control actually doesn't take a whole lot of computation. When you were working and building this, well, did you ever think it was another person? Did you ever react to it and started asking it things or expecting it? Things? <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you know that it's a piece of metal and motors, and you know all the code that's going on behind it, but every now and then, you know, it acts in a way that you don't expect. At a certain level, it's hard to, to know exactly what's going to happen to it, how it's going to respond, because its behavior is not scripted. It's really responding to its environment and reacting to that. And so, you know, sometimes you get that glimpse of it being very lifelike. Well, thank you very much. Congratulations. Thank you. Domo arigato, Mr. Roboto. Domo. Domo arigato, Mr. Roboto. Grad student Aaron Edsinger built Domo at MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. Until just recently, Rodney Brooks was director of the lab. Now he's professor of robotics and artificial intelligence at MIT and also chief technology officer at iRobot, a company that produces robotic vacuum cleaners. You might have seen Brooks in the movie Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, playing himself, an eccentric designer of robots. When I switched the things on, the lights flashed and the machine came to life. It moved. Some people believe that we are going to replace ourselves by building these machines, and that may be. Rodney Brooks' office in a space-age building at MIT is a study in controlled chaos. We sit on a couch opposite a wall with a poster of fast, cheap, and out of control, and a photo of Brooks and a robot playing with a slinky. Yeah, that was a robot named Cog, and a humanoid form, but no legs. And... Uh, we were really interested, and still are, in having robots with arms that are safe to be in the same space as, whereas a robot in a factory with an arm, you don't want to be near. And So trying to make robots that are safe to interact with so that ultimately we can have robots manipulating things in the world, doing stuff with us and partnering with us. And for us baby boomers, this is going to be important in our old age. 
Oh, really? Why? Well, if you look at the demographics of the world, there's going to be many, many more elderly compared to working-age people. Same problem with our Social Security financing. And uh, where are we going to get all the, all the people to help us in our homes and in our hospitals? We're going to have to have more robotics help and assistance. And right now, the state of the art, are we there? Well, we're not there yet, but I think we're making good progress towards it. You know, we're starting to see robots in people's homes. Now, by the standards of 30 years from now, those robots are fairly simple. They're home cleaning robots. My company, iRobot, happens to be the, the biggest manufacturer of them. You're making basically vacuum cleaners. Yeah, but they're robotic vacuum cleaners. You press the clean button and you walk away and they clean the house. Oh, so... thing really works. Yeah, of course it works. <laughs> but I'm thinking, you know, the Jetsons, where they yeah. have Rosie the robot. So, so we're not going to have Rosie anytime soon. But you got to think, what were computers like 30 years ago? What are computers like now? Well, we're in the William H. Gates building at MIT, and Bill Gates has an article in the January issue of Scientific America, which he talks about the future of robots. And he says they're going to be as ubiquitous as computers. Yeah, he makes the analogy that between robots today and computers when Microsoft got started. And his company was one of the leading forces in changing what computers could do. So what do we need to accomplish between where we are now and your vacuum cleaner robot and the robots that kind of have arms and swing and spray paint, and, and where are we going to be in 10 years? Well, I, I say there's two really critical things that we as researchers should be working on at the universities. We need the visual object recognition capabilities of a two-year-old child and the manual dexterity of a six-year-old child. They're the two capabilities that I think are important to go after in the research domain right now. We're making progress on both of them, although both have a long history of not necessarily great success over the years. People think about robots. I think they think about humanoid robots. That is, things that look like us, that we create in our own images. When you think robot, is that what you're thinking of? I could believe either way. It could be that we will want robots with human form, or we could have robots with other forms, but we will want to be able to interact with them socially. And let me tell you what I mean by that. We interact with our dogs socially. We know what our dog is looking at, what the dog is paying attention to. Our dogs know what our gaze direction is. They understand us. We understand them. I think we're going to need that intuitive understanding of what our robots are trying to do, and our robots are going to need the intuitive understanding of what it is we're trying to do, and then coexist with us and help us. And if they don't do that, no one's going to buy it. We designed these robots. It seems like we design them in our own image, and that when we try to give them intelligence and maybe even consciousness, that it's really not saying what is a robot. We're asking the question, what is human? Well, that's, I think, one of the biggest drivers for us in my research lab here is being what is human and trying to understand that by building models. For me, the most remarkable thing has been how simple the social interaction parts are to build. Now, what's hard is object recognition, manipulation, the stuff the two-year-olds can do. So look out a hundred years. I know that's ah, the stuff years. of science fiction. Are we going to have robot people? Well, we don't have robot birds yet. We've got really good machines that fly, but we don't have machines that fly like birds. So I think we get the essence, but whether we 
go to the trouble of making it identical to a human? I don't know. Now, could it be 100 years from now that we have robots that are truly intelligent and true beings? In principle, absolutely. You know, I, as a sort of strong scientist, think that we are machines. You and I are machines. We're made of biomolecules, biomolecules that interact through the laws of chemistry and physics. So we are machines. So in principle, it seems that we should be able to have machines built out of other stuff which are intelligent like us. Now, another question is, are we humans smart enough to build such machines? That's an open question. You know, you look at a raccoon. A raccoon's very dexterous with its hands. You know, it can unlock things and get into places and stuff. But I don't know anyone who's looked at a raccoon and thought, hey, one day that raccoon's going to build a robot raccoon just like itself. <laughs> right? So, you know, you can imagine the guys from Alpha Centauri from another solar system are up in their UFOs looking down and they're looking down at MIT and they're saying, oh, look at those little professors there. They think they're going to build robot versions themselves. Aren't they cute? But it seems that this is as much philosophy as physics. It's a mixture of the two. And, and therefore, it's very murky. And therefore... Many scientists feel very uncomfortable about it. How do you feel about it? I feel fascinated. What could be more fun except going to space? Dr. Brooks, I want to thank you very much. Thank you. Rodney Brooks is the Panasonic Professor of Robotics at the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory and Chief Technology Officer of iRobot. For photos of him and Aaron Edsinger's robo-sapien domo, log on to our website, loe.org. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. CDs and transcripts are $15. We leave you this week with a little rock music. When the sun sets on Mustard Canyon in Death Valley, California, the temperatures drop, and the rock walls seem to come alive as they shift, crackle, and pop in the cooling desert air. Producer Guy Hand was there to record the Stones in Concert. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley O'Hearn, Eileen Belinsky, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Andrea Smartin, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom, Kelly Cronin, and Jeff Turton. Our interns are Lauren Cox and Amy Fish. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Steve Kerwood is the executive producer. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. 
Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Wellborn Ecology Fund, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.